The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. The Enviro Show it is. Welcome, welcome. It's the Green Green Show right here on the station. I'm Nancy Richards together with uh, Garnet and Quinica and also Kim Winter. And we're starting off tonight. Hotel Verde is uh, its said to be the greenest hotel in Africa. Well, I have to say, having had a chance to try it, I'll be bringing you a little bit more of that at a later stage. But tonight, I'm going to be chatting to or hearing from some of the green team at the hotel. They're going to share their personal stories. And after that, Case Raystake, it's a name probably known to you star fans. And in a, a little series that we're calling Particles, he's talking today about uh, asteroids and their significance. What is an asteroid? Well, stay with us and you'll find out. Then after that, Gardens, Keith Kirsten, Mr. Garden himself, he's going to chat to us about his brand new book called Gardens to Inspire, and that's in our holiday green read feature. And then finally, in our green goodie feature, five top tips to keep your vegetable garden growing nicely. Going to be chatting to uh, a trainer from the Soil for Life people, so we should uh, get some really useful inspiration there. That's what we have lined up, and if you'd like to get in touch, you can give us a call, 0892 0892 10 2010 or pop us a mail enviro at safm.co.za and don't forget you can always find us on facebook well just briefly uh before we move on this week's hot topics well in terms of environmental catastrophes i think the freezing conditions in the u.s have been caused by what's been called a polar vortex which is a rush of dense frigid air that's seen temperatures as you've probably seen on television in all 50 states plummet to way below freezing caused over 20 deaths so far Good news is that apparently it's starting to ease up, that polar vortex. But our own local uh, catastrophe, I would have to say, aside perhaps from the recent flooding in Lanesburg, are the heavy downpours that caused a spillage of contaminated water into the Oliphants River in the Kruger Park that came in via the Salati tributary. It seems that hundreds of fish have already died, but apparently still too soon to see if bigger animals will be affected. Well, he's on leave at present. That's the CEO of the Kruger Park, Dr. David Mabunda. But we do hope to have a chat to him at a later stage here on the show to find out uh, how external crises such as this are actually affecting the country's most popular game reserve. But don't forget, if there's any topic you would uh, feel is particularly hot here on the Enviro Show, pop us a mail, enviro at safm.co.za. We'll pick up the phone right now, 0892-10-2010. The Enviro Show. Well, I had the opportunity to stay at the Hotel Verde just recently. It's uh, just 400 metres from Cape Town International Airport and one hell of a green experience if ever there were. And as I say, we'll be bringing you a little bit more on that at a later stage. But at the time, what struck me was how the team there had been brought into the whole green consciousness thing, starting at, right at the top with the general manager, Samantha Annandale. And I wondered just how green she'd been before. Unfortunately, not very green. It, I think it's become a part of my life. I think you, you buy into it very quickly. If you understand the concept behind it, I just think there's no other way to go. And I think I'm actually quite painful when it comes to the green aspect at the moment, at home as well as at work. And it's something you come to believe in passionately. So now I'm definitely very green. I've been in hotels since I was 18 and it's been my life. Don't know anything else. But this was definitely different in the fact that you had to stretch your mindset completely. The same old, same old could not apply. What we do in other hotels, we had to rethink. 
Fortunately for me, I love thinking out of the box. And in fact, if you tell me a file has to be over there because it's been there for the last 10 years, I'll go out of my way to prove you different. So I really enjoyed the challenge with this hotel as far as concepts and, and service interventions and doing it differently and then also linking it with the green aspect. I've certainly had to learn a hell of a lot that I did not know and reinventing things and just doing it slightly differently um, has certainly been a, a challenge but also most enjoyable one at that. From an operational point of view, the, I think the challenge is sourcing of suppliers and to get people to think equally as green as what you think. When we look at suppliers, we look at packaging of their products and how, how open-minded they are to be going the green route. And then I think really for the rest of the operations, there's not much of a challenge. From the staff, it is also a, a change of their mindset and the continuous training that we have to do. But they're proud of what they're doing, so it, it very soon just becomes a way of how we work. The technical side of it for some of us is quite daunting. We've got some innovative technology here that we haven't had in hotels before. And also, I think to be able to get all these systems to work together like our, our building management system to talk effectively with our point of sale. That software had to be written specifically for us. So it's got, a, it's got hiccups and we have to learn and we have to adapt with that. And if IT is not your forte, it can be a bit daunting. So that has been a bit of a challenge. From the guest perspective, I don't think there's much challenges for the guests. They love the green aspect. Some people, obviously, as you know, I mean, if whether they stay in a, a green hotel or not doesn't really maybe phase them that much. But I would say about 70% of our guests, from the feedback that we've got, certainly enjoy the green aspect of it. They're very complimentary about what we're doing, and they feel good. They feel like they've done something good. So when they leave here, it's not just that they've had a good service or good experience. They actually feel that they've really contributed in some way, which is quite special. Hmm, special indeed. General Manager Samantha Annandale. Well, then we heard from the consultant who oversaw the whole construction project. My name is Andre Harms. I'm the director of Ecolution Consulting. It's a boutique or fairly young and small sustainability consulting firm. We are mostly in the green building sphere, so design and, and optimizing of buildings to be more sustainable for the systems within the buildings or the processes within the buildings to be more sustainable but we do general sustainability consulting. I'm an electromechanical engineer by training. I've spent about 14 and a half months in Antarctica, which is the highest, driest, windiest and coldest continent on Earth. And during my months there, it kind of dawned on me that this is more or less, or that Antarctica is more or less the last untouched continent on, on our planet where humans haven't really messed it up to, to quite an extensive scale. And um, upon my return, Ecolution was founded um, in the, with the aim to make sure that humans start learning more about sustainability, that there are alternatives and that we can do a better, find a better way of doing things. So what were you doing in Antarctica? I was the station's mechanical engineer responsible for all the mechanical systems and I was the team leader of the overwintering expedition. And how was the experience? I mean, I believe, you know, we all hear a lot of things about it. I mean, was it, was it threatening? Was it eye-opening? What, what did it mean to you? Most of all, it was cold. <laughs> No, it was, a, it was a wonderful experience, probably one of the best years of my life. And it was threatening at times, there were some really harsh conditions um, where we had to work in or, or yeah, basically be in. There were lonely times, there were isolated times, but all in all it was an absolutely marvellous adventure experience with a great bunch of people who I'm still very good friends with. 
and it, I think it just really helped me grow as a person. And, and gave you a bit of an insight into the, the vulnerability, I suppose, of our future. When you, was it that that triggered you to start Ecolution? That was one of the main reasons. I've always been an engineer by training and having some German blood in my, in my veins. Um, in, energy efficiency, water efficiency, those things come naturally and it's always been a passion of mine, recycling, etc. From, from a young age onwards. But seeing what, how untouched Antarctica really is from a direct point of view, but what effects it is still feeling from global warming, for example, just made me realize that we have to make a plan and start doing things differently. We sure do. I mean, climatically speaking, there are so many extremes happening now that you have to build buildings to be very sound and very solid to make sure that they just survive, never mind anything else. As a company, are you a consultant? Do you actually do the work? How does it work? We are consultants. We are not affiliated to any suppliers, any manufacturers, any specific products. What we do is we partner with building developers, building owners, and bring in the right solutions on their behalf. So we compare options, we analyze them, we make um, suggestions, but we're not married to anyone in particular, and we try and, in the end, deliver what's best for the client or for the project or for the building to optimize their processes there. I suppose people come to you because they're already, that you, is it like you're preaching to the converted and people come to you because that's what they want. But it's probably the people who are not coming to you that you really need to get to. How do you cope with that? The industry is growing and that is really encouraging. I think there's some other really great players out there that are helping to transform the market, like the Green Building Council of South Africa, for example. So we, we are just staying close to those and we also in, every, in our everyday activities where we come across a supplier who doesn't quite have the right solution yet, we just tell them about what we would like to see and in, in that way bring more products online and when there's a bigger product offering, more people learn about it or see it and in that way we hope that you know, the market will really change in a big way. Are you working mostly with corporates, businesses, hotels, that sort of thing, or the domestic sort of residential market as well? It's been a reasonable mix so far. Hotel Valley has definitely been our biggest and, and longest project, um, Ecolution only being around about three years. Um, but we've had some domestics, two bigger houses, for example, that have quite a huge energy bill seeking help to reduce that bill, and, and then some NGOs who, who have a massive operational cost burden which they would like to see reduced and then obviously new developments like Hotel Veda, for example. So it's been a nice mix. Wouldn't we all like to see our cost burden reduced? That was Andre Harms of Ecolution Consultants. And then there was receptionist Lorato Mabuya. I was initially a student from HYI, which is Hospitality Initiative Program. And then it was in Eastern Cape. And then we moved back to Johannesburg, where we got placed in the Michelangelo Hotel. And then that's where I did my training. And then after six months, I was working for private shuttle where like it was only transfers and tours. And then right after that, I came here through Mrs. Annandale. Like I didn't know that she was the GM of Hotel Verde. And then I just found out when I moved here to Cape Town. Honestly, I didn't know anything about the green business. I learned so much about this hotel. Initially in July, when they explained to us about the greenery aspects of this hotel, I, like, I didn't know anything. But then now I know so much and how it's going to change the world. It's very interesting. And how has it changed your life? Firstly, like I've taken this green aspect home because now I am paying rent. I know how to save water, I know how to save electricity, and it has changed so much. It has changed my life so much. 
Lorata Mabuya. Well, moving swiftly from reception into the kitchen, where I spoke to executive chef Nancy Carr. I come from Germany originally. I immigrated to Namibia in 1982 and moved 2004 to Cape Town, worked until 2009 in Cape Town and then worked, uh, went to UK, worked in the UK for the season, came back to South Africa, back UK, back South Africa. Then I stayed for two years in the UK, decided I had it with the weather came back to Cape Town and worked a little bit helping here and there, helping out. Actually went to Namibia because we've got a family hotel in Namibia as well. And then email came up if I don't look for employment at the hotel where if I'm not available because they approached me actually prior and I was not available. Then they re-approached me and then I said, all right, we have a look at that one. Are you here because you're a green cook or are you here because you're a cook cook or why this particular hotel and why you in this job? I think it's a challenge to be the first eco hotel in this country, number one. I come from Europe, I know what's eco and health and everything all about it. I myself, I don't like greasy food, oily food, fatty food, I'm very health conscious already. And I think it's also nice to educate everyone what it's all about and what actually can be done. That was Nancy Carr. She was the executive chef there at the Hotel Verde. And finally, in charge of the recycling depot, Crosby Nogilana. So where did he begin? Uh, I'm going to start from 1998, when I was working for a construction, power construction. I worked there for three years, and after that I didn't have work afterwards. The contract, the, they removed the contract from, from the site, the Delft, they were where they were doing the buildings, so they moved to Mfulene. And only then we found that now only Mfulene people could work there. So for two years I stayed out of work. So by the time I had, there was a hotel in Seapoint, which is Ambassador Hotel. It was looking for scholars. So I was interested, but by then I didn't have even, um, I didn't have a CV. So I had to go and make a CV and to try to track down the people that I was working with just to make uh, my CV. So um, I reached a guy, his name was Kolele, he was our manager. So I phoned him and I spoke to him and told him, um, Kolele, I'm looking for a job, I'm out of job. And I had there's a, a hotel in Seapoint, he's looking for people. Can you please be, um, can you give some information that, so that I can provide it when I get there? And can you please make sure that you, I do have a landline number so that I can phone you from your offices, guys. So the guy was willing, so he gave me and then I did my CV. So then I put it through. Um, in a week's time, they phoned me and I came for interview for three days after that. So then they hired me as a scholarly. I was cleaning dishes since I like to move forward in life. So um, I was starting asking questions if is there a way that I can because I was interested in being a waiter. So they told me now can go through a training if you want to be a waiter. But that they do, ah, afterwards I checked, no man, I couldn't do a waiter because I want to be something more than a waiter. So there was this position again um, as a storeman. So I went for a training for storeman. So training it took me um, a one week after that to employ me as a, as a storeman. That was less than in three, um, three months when I was doing a scholarly. But it was just under probation, so I waited until my three months was finished. So then I started to work as a, as a storeman. So I worked there as, uh, for two and a half years. So I had peop new people were coming over and they were going to start to work there. So all of us were going to have to go again through interviews because they had their own staff. So they wanted to check if they've got the uh, uh, right staff to work because they've got some ideas, some changes. We're not the same, everything was not the same, it was different. So um, when I heard there was this new hotel was opening this site um, and my, my supervisor, which is Mum Tessi, that she was also working with me there. And uh, 
So once they told her that they, there was no position for anymore, so they wanted to pay her. So she got a job here at Hotel Verdi. So she asked me, um, do you think you will be fine here? Because we've been working together for a very long time. Because we have our personal chats and private chats sometimes. So I said, no, man, you know what? I'd like to, uh, to change and work for a new hotel because I heard this hotel has got a new stuff, which I don't know about. And it's a green hotel. It's the greenest hotel in Africa. So I was interested in that. And uh, she said, okay, it's fine. Um, I'll check and see. And I'll put a good word for you there. So then she came and talked to Mrs. Samantha. And she was, okay, it's fine. You can bring the guy and you must bring his CV. So I brought my CV and I went for interview. And shockingly, uh, the HR, because she was interviewing me, and she was amazed about my, uh, the interview that she took with me because as a storeman, since I've got experience of being a storeman, so she was interested. So they told me to come, ah, you, can you come over and wait for us and so and so. Then we can negotiate your salary and stuff. I said, okay, it's fine. And it's near where I stay because I stay in the house. And see point when I, I was working there, I will use 40 rent on my return daily. That's only daily. And I was, I was getting paid uh, weekly. So it was not much money for me. So then I was interested. So I came and then as they started to employ me on the 1st of August, if I'm not mistaken. So um, I resigned where I was working. I was not fired. And I think I just resigned. So when you get here, I started to work here. But less than three months again, there was this position here because this hotel is a greenish hotel. And they're working different than the other hotels that I used to work for. So they told me, you know what, we want to make you a sorter. You know what is a sorter? So I was not sure. Hey, and I was interested. I said, no. Okay, we're doing recycling and we want to make you in charge for recycling. You know, you're a storeman, but we want to give you another position. To me, it was a new learning and I was interested. I said, yes, thank you. That will be lovely. So I started to go for a training and uh, I was booked, I think, for three days in City Isis in Cape Town. There was an event there, so I went there with big people. I was listening to this stuff, and it was nice. And I learned a lot there, what is the recycling, this whole recycling is all about. At first, I didn't know what was the recycling about. So uh, since I went for training and stuff, and I realized, no, man. Recycling was to um, we keep this, uh, the environment. This is environment, because, for instance, in this hotel, Verdin, there is, every hotel I know, there is mouth of rats, if I can call it that. Yeah, but we chose not to, to poison them, just to capture them. Because if we poison them, they will go and die somewhere. And when they die somewhere, the birds will come and eat them and the birds will die. So it's not good for for environment. So I did all those training and I see, oh, this is, is a greenest hotel. I realize a greenest hotel is not like other hotel. It has got a different way of doing things because we're passionate about what we do. And we had to. This is it's, it's a reality. The honesty, it comes first. And this hotel, it, it goes with the honesty and, uh, and the respect. So since ever I started working here, I've been, I've been feeling like a changed person, a new person. As for my uh, supervisor, since we've been having a personal um, talks, I open up to her and she knows my background that I'm living with my mom and my one young sister and my one younger brother. And my sister has got two kids and I've got one kid and I'm just looking for the second one because I believe I had the second one but I had to go first for a blood test because uh, I'm not 110% sure about it. So at home, um, I'm a breadwinner. I'm the only one who's working at the moment because my sister, she just gave birth, now she's out of work at the moment. I think it's because of the, the lady stuff. 
So um, I'm the only one who's uh, working at home. So to me, um, working here at Total Verde, it's a, a beautiful experience. It's a new thing and it's amazing and I love it. And how nice is that? That was Crosby Nogilaliana and uh, he heads up the recycling depot at Hotel Verde. And how is that for a green-minded team? I promise I will be bringing you a whole lot more on the hotel at a later stage, but if you want to check it out for yourself, have a look. Check the site. It's www.hotelverde. That's V-E-R-D-E, hotelverde.com, hotelverde.com. The Enviro Show. Well, here on the Enviro Show, kind of moving up to higher things, I could say, because on the line we have uh, well-known astronomer Case Raystake, who has volunteered to bring us landlubbers a bit closer to the firmament. And uh, we're calling his series Particles, just because why not? And I think it's a, a word he's coined himself. We're going to kick off today uh, talking about asteroids, but let's kick off by finding out a little bit about Case. Hi, Case. Good evening, Nancy. How are you? Excellent. Lovely to have you with us, and Happy New Year, and may it be star-filled from your point of view. Um, (laughs) Case, before we get on to asteroids and other things that I don't understand, how did you get involved in astronomy? Uh, When I went to university, I started chemical engineering, and very quickly I wanted to ask other questions. So I finished up in physics and astronomy, and that's, in those days, astronomy wasn't a real course at university, so I went to the observatory, where I was taught on a one-to-one basis by the Astronomer Royal at the Cape at the time, Richard Stoy, Hmm. which was fantastic. What sort of questions were you asking? Um, Well, it was really, I was sort of um, into sort of rockets and that sort of stuff, and the sun areas, and in fact, I wanted to know questions about stars, which rockets wouldn't answer. So the change to physics and maths and astronomy came. Hmm. The thi- well, maybe we'll get onto this via the as- the asteroids. I keep wanting to say astronauts for asteroids <laughs> because, you know, I'm thinking, why should we need to know about the stars aside from the fact that it's really nice to look up there at the sort of, you know, black sky with all these stars in it? How much use is it to us? But let's let's start with asteroids. It's what you know, a for asteroids. It's what you've identified. What is an asteroid? Well, <clears throat> basically, when when the solar system formed about four or five billion years ago. Um, from a large cloud of gas and dust, formed the sun and the planets, and then there were bits left over, remnants. And these were partially comets, and some of them were chunks of rock we call asteroids. We have a well-known asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, and that's where a lot of asteroids, most of them are. And then beyond the orbit of Pluto, there's a thing called the Kuiper belt, which is sort of a, a super asteroid belt, which contains comets. The whole thing's enveloped in a massive cloud of comets, chunks of ice. These are the remnants of the formation of the solar system. Now, of course, when any of these objects get disturbed, they will fall down, and in this case, down is towards the sun. So in so doing, sometimes they might come close to the Earth. And asteroids have been known to hit the Earth in the past, and we well know that the moon, if we look at the moon, it's, got, it's packed with craters from impacts. The Earth also has impact craters, evidence that we've been hit by asteroids in the past. Well-known examples in Africa are the Twang Crater north of Pretoria and the Friedefort Dome, which is the oldest and largest impact crater on Earth. It's about 2.03 or whatever it is, billion years old. So we've been hit before. So it's important for us to know if there are any other objects out there that might hit the Earth in the near future. And these are called, called near-Earth objects. And there's a number of telescopes and 
that are dedicated to identifying these objects and calculating the orbits and seeing if they will or will not hit the Earth. And of course, last year in February, people might remember we had that very close pass of an asteroid pass between the Moon and the Earth. That's really a direct hit. It's so close, it's unbelievable. And at the same time, we had that mysterious object that came from a completely coincidental, different side that hit Russia. Pure coincidence, not related at all. Mm. But it, again, evidence that these things can appear and cause damage. And, you know, we've got to make sure that we, if they are going to come, that we know about it and just figure out if we anything we can do about it. Yeah. I, I uh, mean, that's yeah. the interesting asteroids at the moment. Okay. I mean, I suppose we talk about them causing damage. It's really part of the part of the big picture, isn't it? I mean, that's how things change and evolve. But it's it's not like they're going to sort of suddenly come at us out of the blue without warning. I mean, we're looking at billions of years here. Do how much warning do we have? Well, it's it varies enormously. Sometimes you you can detect one and work out its orbit and say, well, it's not going to affect us for another twenty or thirty or forty years. But other times, like on New Year's Eve. Last year, they detected one, and 21 hours later, it hit the Earth. Mm. And um, fortunately, it was a very small one, but it landed in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. But we had no warning at all. So, but it was a very small one, about the size of a small car. Um, so if it did enter the Earth's atmosphere, it would probably burn up without causing any serious damage to the Earth itself, or the surface of the Earth, or cities, or people, or anything else. But the point about it is, it's one of those sort of things that you can't always predict. The way these things are detected is by their movement across the sky, but if they're coming directly towards you, of course, there's very little lateral movement, so you get less and less warning. So it, the idea is to identify as many as we can, calculate the orbits, and hopefully we can sort of find out what the orbit is and hopefully find out if it is going to hit us. Yeah. What, do we know what precipitates one to fall? Is there some something that's happening up there that we, you know, this is what's caused it? There's nothing we can, we don't know exactly what it is. It could be a minor disturbance in the asteroid belt. It could be that planets are, you know, as they move around the sun, sometimes they have an effect on the asteroid belt, or maybe it's a passing comet that could disturb uh, the asteroid belt. Any small perturbation could cause one of these things to just drip out of its normal orbit and start falling towards the sun. And then we have the potential of an asteroid coming close to the Earth, and we call these things near-Earth objects. We work out their orbit, and if they're going to hit, we can try and figure out when they're going to hit, and so on and so forth. But the probability is absolutely microscopic. I mean, you know, these are sort of once-in-a-million or billion-year occurrences. Yeah. Yeah. So, but we need to know. Yeah, no, indeed. And, and we need to know if they, you know, suddenly come raining down at us, why? When you say that the, the small one, about the size of a car, um, two questions here. The first question is, do they change in their nature uh, as they're coming into the Earth's atmosphere? Do they, you, you mentioned them burning up, I presume that's when they get close to the sun, but do they, do they change or do, do they freeze no, up? No, what happens is as they enter the Earth's atmosphere, you know, the, the air gets progressively denser. Uh, as you get close to the Earth, and the friction of these objects coming into the Earth at huge speeds, I mean, probably 60-odd kilometers per second, um, they, the, the heat generated is so enormous that these things, if they're very small, 
I mean, sometimes we see them as shooting stars or we see them as fireballs or things like that. But when they get to the size of a bit bigger than a car, but let's say a bus or more, they will hit the earth and have an imp- create an impact. Something that created the Swang Crater was probably uh, 50 or 60 meters across, you know, something like that. Uh, bigger ones could be a kilometer or more across. And they will not burn up in the atmosphere. They will actually impact the Earth. So we've got to find out their orbits. We've got to find out their size. And, that, and then work out from there how serious the threat is. Yeah, sure. Just imagine something a, a kilometer across coming crashing down to the Earth. The, the other part of the question about the whatever the size is of the asteroid that's falling, if it, for instance, lands in the ocean, presumably has the potential to cause some sort of um, activity in the ocean, you know, tidal wave or...? Well, they could. It would have to be very big to cause a serious tidal yeah. wave. The one that, for example, crashed in the mid-Atlantic in, on the 1st of January this year um, was very small and the effect on the Earth um, would not have had any serious effect. But if it's something really big, it could have a, a small tsunami. And if it's really big, quite a major tsunami, like the thing that... Um, it took a look um, 65 billion, a million years ago, rather, um, allegedly caused the extinction of the dinosaurs, which is not strictly true. But uh, no doubt it had a, a, an effect on the decline of the dinosaurs. That was a very big object, and that would have created quite a tidal wave in the Gulf of Mexico. Goodness me. It's all, it's all a little bit outside of the, the size of my brain. It's quite difficult when you talk about these things to sort of even imagine how big they are. I suppose, you know, here we sit at the beginning of 2014. In your, um, through your telescope, is there anything on the horizon? Should we be running for cover now? Nothing. They've, they've, they've now, in, in the last, since 2000, we've increased our knowledge of the asteroids about tenfold. So we really more or less on top of it. We know most of them. We can calculate the orbits of most of them, but occasionally going to get the freak that we have to look out for. But basically, we don't have to lose any sleep. We're okay. <laughs> hmm. You say that, but I mean, as you say, anything could happen, really. Yeah. How does it help us, I mean, aside from knowing where to be and where not to be and how to deal with it when it arrives? Well, I mean, there's all sorts of projects that are undergoing at the moment. Is, is What do you do if there is one on a collision course to the Earth, if you have enough time, can you actually divert the thing? We've had films about this, um, you know, the Bruce Willis stuff of blowing the thing up, yes. this sort of stuff. It doesn't quite work, but there are other ways that could work. Um, a little bit complex, but um, it's, it is possible to, to... We have the technology. I mean, after all, we have already landed probes on asteroids and brought them back to Earth. So, you know, we can do things, um, not blow them up, but try and alter their orbit very slightly. And it doesn't have to be very much to make them miss. So, you know, the, the, potentially we have the technology to, um, to avoid these things. Mm. Um, but we need to know enough data to take the decisions what to do. We sure do. Case, I, just last quickly, I haven't seen it myself, but have you seen the movie Gravity? No, I, I really want to see it because yeah. I'm a great fan. I mean, I, I, I believe my son teaches film, and um, he says I've got to go and see it. <laughs> well, maybe uh, next, maybe next time we chat, you can give us a quick review on that one as well. Yeah, so it, it, this has it's any credibility. very good, and uh, I'm a great fan of 2001, which was a film which came out many, many years ago, but it was really great. 
Lovely. Case, we will be talking again soon and enjoy and uh, watch out for falling asteroids. Thanks a lot. Take care. Yep, good night. Cheers. Case Ray Steak, and we will be talking to him again probably next month. So uh, if you've got questions or thoughts on that, why don't you pop us in the mail? It's uh, uh, it's um, enviro at safm.co.za if you've got any questions for Case Ray Steak. Enviro at safm.co.za. Well, lastly, moving into the garden, and in fact, in a minute, we're going to be getting five top tips to keep your vegetable garden growing nicely. We're going to be talking to a trainer at Soil for Life. He's Simon Kashani. But first, a man who's probably seen more gardens than there are blades of grass or even asteroids in the sky. He's Keith Kirsten, and his latest book is called Gardens to Inspire. Well, I spoke to him earlier to find out a little bit more. So I've wanted actually for many years to write a book about the gardens that I have particularly visited over the years or been involved with. And I think it comes from the traveling and the lecturing from little dorps, you know, and going to the Eastern Cape to a place like Bedford, you know, where you'll see cavers is in the book. Um, and just travels around and growing up in the Durban Botanic Gardens and studying there, working there, cutting my teeth there, being on the board at Kirstenbosch for seven years uh, during the transition period. And um, I think it's just that I've always thought it would be great to let people see these gardens if they haven't been to them themselves. Uh, because a lot of them, are, most of them, in fact, are not open to the public uh, unless it's on special days. And so I just, I've always wanted to do it. And it, it took me a long time to get around to it. Every time I approached it with my publishers, I realized how much time it was going to take and how much effort, and I kind of put it on the back burner. But I got going about three years ago and started compiling a file, making notes, talking to people as I went around and getting agreement on their gardens going in and whatever. And we had to obviously eliminate it, which is sad because they're far more beautiful gardens than the 25 that are listed in the book. So what mm. qualified the ones that you've chosen? I mean, was it grand? Was it um, no, inspirational? No, but and in fact, mm. you'll find, even though some of them are grand or, or on a large scale, you'll find that um, we don't really show any buildings in this book. Uh, it's not about the houses. It's yeah. not about whether they posh or not. It was really the three criteria were, number one, they had to have some design element, uh, and they secondly had to be of people who are passionate about what they were doing, whether it be Kirstenbosch, which is a semi-government organization, or whether it be private gardens. And thirdly, it had to be about the plants in the garden, uh, about what plants were used in whatever climatic zone, um, and in the way they were used in the design. And, and we talk a lot about the plants in the book. And we also uh, caption if every picture if it's, and it tells you what plant is in it because there's many books on the market that they don't even give you. In a beautiful picture, they don't tell you what rose it is, they don't tell you what tree it is, they don't tell you what hedge it is or whatever. So it's more it's about gardening and passionate people and design. Yeah, and it's very helpful to have the names because you think, well, that's exactly what I want for my spot. Mm -hmm. But I suppose necessarily they're also gardens that have some sort of history because a garden doesn't just happen overnight. It happens Correct. over decades. Was that part of, the, part of the criteria as well? I think it kind of happened anyway because, I mean, some of them are brand new. You know, Babylon's Turin is not really old at all, but it's a fabulous design and it's a great concept and clever idea and it's growing plants in an area which is sort of not all that um, wet throughout the year and so they've chosen plants that suit the climate um, yet Kirsten Bosch Botanic Gardens has been around 100 years as you know mm. this year and Durban Botanic Gardens is the oldest botanical garden 
in Africa. And it started out as a, as a trial garden for fruit and, and timber and things for the Natal colonies. So um, it's, it's really, so many of them have obviously got a history to them. Uh, and Fechelechen, for example. And yes, I know that it seems Cape biased, but it just happens to be that there are some magnificent old gardens here in the Cape um, that are beautifully tended and maintained and, and have custodianship of them. So that's why they ended up in the book. I think, you know, my next book must already be more, I, I mean, someone's already said, why don't you do a book? My friend in Australia said to me, why don't I do something on coastal gardens? But you've got to go and search, you know, because yeah. they're there. you just got to go and search. They are there, and the reason that they're there very often is because somebody had the inspiration to put, put one together in the first place, but because somebody bothered to design them. And a bit like, you know, their history, they need to be designed. You can't just sort of let... Well, or can you? I mean, are the, are the best gardens the one where nature has taken the lead? I think that you take your lead from nature when you are in an inhospitable in situation, whether it be on a mountainside or whether it be on the coast. Uh, so I think you then have to take your lead from the topography and the climate. And yet at the same time, there are some fabulously terraced gardens around the world. I think of the ones in the south of France and in Italy, where they've had sloping ground and they've made the best of it during and, and created or even formal gardens um, on those slopes. So I think, it, yes, it is about design. I mean, there's a fabulous indigenous semi-formal garden uh, at Nurtuk, that is absolutely fabulous, uh, that was designed and, and planted by a, a, a person who was mad about indigenous plants. That didn't make the book because it's under new ownership and they're doing a big cleanup. But that would have gone into my book, um, and it's beautiful. It's indigenous plants, semi-formal, and was designed by um, that fabulous uh, fabric company from London called you know, something and something. Um, Osborne and Little. Okay. Is it Osborne and Little? Little. Little. By a chap by the name of Mr. Little. He he did it. Osborne and Little. Okay. Um, he designed that from the UK and he lived here, obviously, when he was here. And now he's sold. But it's a fabulous indigenous garden with a semi-formal colonial, beautiful Palladian sort of house uh, with these marvelous terraces and capturing water off the mountain that, that's fed through underground pipes and into a pool big swimming pool. Wow. It's a natural swimming pool. No chemicals. So I think it is, a, as you say, about design. It's about the plant material. He obviously uh, used to go to Kirstenbosch a lot and he decided he wanted to really go with nature and not have sort of um, Englishy plants around. So it's full of beautiful feinbos and proteas and cushions and restios, uh, you know, cake thatching grasses and dioramas, harebells and beautiful bulbous things, watsonias. Magnificent, absolutely magnificent. Uh, that, yeah, that was going to be my next question, really. You know, to what extent, are, you know, you've used the word colonial a couple of times and I'm thinking, hmm, is this the way the gardens are necessarily going? Because we have such wonderful indigenous material here. I'm looking at, uh, is it Makaranga? where yes. you call it indigenous forest meets enchanted garden. Yes. Well, again, because the Kloof climate is so superb for azaleas and camellias and things, they can grow some of these exotic plants. So it's not 100% indigenous at all, that garden. But climatically, the plants are as happy as figs and SH1T, and they do very well with the indigenous macaranga trees and all the other lovely wild things, including some of the indigenous orchids that grow on the trees there. So it's fabulous. I mean, there's a garden at Fishhook that I know uh, by an elderly couple. Um, I think he's passed on since, and I filmed that some years ago, and it's right. It's a thatched house, a stone-thatched colonial house, 
but the whole garden at the back up the mountain they've made into just lovely little meandering walkways with uh, mulched pathways, uh, logs sort of edging to the beds, and it's all famous. The whole thing, they've gone indigenous mad and plotted the whole thing back to how it originally was, and it's fabulous. Mm. And yet at the same time, I know someone in the same street who's trying to grow larkspurs and sweet peas <laughs> in spring, you know, <laughs> with the howling blasts of the wind that comes off that sea. So, um, but I think it is about, when you say colonial, you also automatically think, Bougainvillea and Agapanthus you know, are indigenous, but Bougainvillea, uh, roses, and sort of formal plantings of boxwood uh, in, a, in, a, in a formal garden uh, or colonial garden. Uh, and the colonials loved uh, the exotic things in, in a South African situ- situation. One of the things about the hydrangeas, for yeah, example. Yeah. yeah, very thirsty, aren't they? One, one of the things about the colonials that they didn't so much bother about sustainability. I mean, you, you know, there are all sorts of yeah. things with people bringing in exactly. all sorts of exotics and what have you. Whereas now, we have to be hell of a careful with our water. We have to be hell of a careful what we plant and what's appropriate. Has the, the issue of sustainability, does it come up again and again? Very much so. And I think to not totally outlaw exotics, because there's a place for them, even in the South African environment, but just two gardens, for example, by contrast. Sandy Ovenstones in Newlands in Cape Town is a fabulous... It's, it's got a lot of indigenous plants in it now, but it's uh, got very lovely colonial but exotic plants that are cold climate, uh, whether they be Myrtus, or, which is Mediterranean, by the way, so it's absolutely in keeping. Um, but the whole design and the, the Cape Dutch house Everything fits into a colonial sort of setting, even though there are beautiful big trees and a lovely waterway now through the garden. And it's right under that mountain, so, you know, in Newland. So it's wet and it gets lots of water. So she's certainly gardening sustainably because she's using the water when it's there and not using it when it's not there. And by contrast, you get Brenthurst, which was a colonial garden with lots of very exotic things and daffodils every spring and pansies everywhere. And that was old Mrs. Oppenheimer, Bridget Oppenheimer's, what she liked. And, and it was the time and the era. And now, you know, Strilly Oppenheimer um, has made the whole thing go more indigenous, even though she's kept the bones of the Joanne Pym, uh, Joan Pym garden design. Uh, so it's got that lovely terraced look, which is important on that slope with that Cape Dutch house. But it's gone in digital, so she's kept completely. So I think the times are changing, and people are thinking more sustainably. And when you need to be sustainable, you must be sustainable. And obviously it would be crazy there to continue guzzling water because it's on a dry, rocky, north-facing outcrop on Parktown Ridge, which really does get very dry in the, in the winter and in the summer. Yeah, times, they definitely are changing. And I'm just looking at some of your pictures thinking, gee whiz, you know, how many teams of gardeners does it take to keep all those hedges clipped and everything sort of very hunky-dory and looking smart? But, you know, what do they say about the best fertiliser is the shadow of the gardener? And if the gardener doesn't have a whole lot of time to be in the garden, I suppose it's about making things that that can grow happily and comfortably without you endlessly having to to weed. What is to be learned from these inspirational gardens, aside from the inspiration, in terms of this is how you can do it without it taking up, costing a fortune Mm -hmm. and taking forever? Well, I think all the way through we give tips and ideas of the actual gardeners themselves on how they manage to do the gardening that they do. Obviously, if you're a passionate gardener, you sort of eat, sleep and drink gardens. You know, Kirsten Bosch has a whole team. But if you look at Montpelier Garden 
of Jackie Crew Brown out on the hills, to, you know, and they've got baboons up in the mountains that come down and maraud the garden every now and again. You know, uh, you talk about predators in a garden, but that garden again is mostly indigenous uh, or certainly Mediterranean, um, and and it's and it's water wires. Um, it's got gravel pathways, only a little bit of lawn around the main house and pool. Otherwise, no lawn in the garden at all. Gravel driveway, gravel car park, and it really is low maintenance. And I can assure you, she doesn't have a team of gardeners. Um, and, and if there's any clipping to be done, it's one maybe little hedge that can be done once every couple of months. Um, so, you know, I think you, you learn by, by your, the time you've got available to garden, the size of your property, and, and how much you've got time, I think, to spend on it. Because it's not all about money. It's also about time. Yeah. And time. You know, my own garden at home, I do in between travels, I do in between being in Cape Town, because I sort of move between both places now. And, and I think in Johannesburg, where my place, my farm garden is, which is also in the book, by the way, under River Lodge Farm. And, you know, what I, what I do there is when I'm there, I kind of really get stuck in, and then I give it a break for a while. And then when I'm there, I get stuck in again. And I, I on a huge property, I've only two gardens. Um, one sort of works the river, alien invasive clearing, planting out new sort of wild grass areas or overseeding, and the other for lawns and, and cultivating, and we do, do some quite serious plant trialing as well in, 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 in a particular area of the garden. So I think it's about, and the average size small garden, most people today do with a, part, a part-time garden who comes in yeah. one day a week yeah. in their garden. And I suppose you do have to, you have to think about what you want your garden to do, whether you want <clears> it just to sort of feed your soul or feed your body. Do you think that in terms of how you're going back to times changing, that more people are beginning to plant vegetable gardens as part of their garden or exclusively their garden? Exactly. And I think that today people really have fun with vegetables and herbs and having a garden that has more meaning to them than in the days where you looked at the front garden as a sort of show garden and the yeah. back was a sort of orchard or, you know, you really you, you relegated a few vegetables to a corner that the gardener used to sort of tend. I think people are really into their gardens, as we should be, and, and as the English and, and people living in Europe for years you know, where they didn't have garden help necessarily. Um, and if they do, they've got to be someone who can afford it as well. So I think people are really into their gardens more and more these days. I think there's a worry amongst the more senior nursery people and gardeners that the younger generation are not growing up with gardens, and they worry that they sort of their garden is literally a trough on a, on a, on a barbecue on a, on a high-rise apartment block. Uh, flat, and so they worried that they're not growing up with um, gardening, you know, under their nails like we did when we, our grannies or our mothers or fathers had an interest in it. We grew up, and we're privileged to have gardens. As I said in my book launch, those gardens in that book, and anyone who's lucky enough to have a lovely garden or an area of space around them of anything more than a couple of hundred meters today are privileged. It's a new absolute statistic out of the United the UK that over 75% of school leavers have never been in touch, close touch with nature. Never. Over 75% of school leavers in, in the UK have never been walking on lawn. They grow up in apartments and in terrace houses and, 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 and they go to school and they learn their computers and watch, I suppose, do computer games. So there's a, yeah. I don't know, you know, it's a privilege to have space. 
you know, we'll have to go to public parks in future, the, the majority of the populations. They won't, be, they won't have gardens. So sad. Yes, 75% of school leavers never, never been into that's, a garden. Uh, that's an absolute statistic out of the UK that I read only last month from, I tell you, where I read it, in the Michael House. Uh, friends of mine's kids would go to Michael House and it was in their newsletter from the headmaster for Christmas. Talking basically about the privilege that kids have if they go to a school where they can walk out into the countryside on the weekends or have a day out swimming in dams and climbing mountains and doing things. Just wondering what the local statistic would be, how many of our school leavers have a chance to be... I think we're luckier. I think we're luckier. I think we're luckier. Mm. We've got such beautiful open spaces that are, especially here in the Cape, well, anywhere in South Africa, actually, Joburg or, or Natal or the Cape, where open spaces are very accessible. No matter where, you can live in an apartment and be straight away in a park or climbing the mountain or walking along the beach somewhere. Well, indeed, as you say, a a garden is not just an inspiration, it's also a huge privilege. Sure is, uh, on the basis of gardens being a privilege. And don't forget, you're listening to uh, the Enviro Show here on SAFM. That was Keith Curson, Mr Gardening himself. And his latest book, once again, is called Gardens to Inspire. And if you feel inspired, uh, you can get hold of a copy. It's published by Random Streak. Well, lastly, in our green, green goodie feature on the issue of gardens, Simon Kashani is a, a home gardener trainer. He's a trainer of the trainers on the Soil for Life program. And uh, so he's been in the gardening business for a long time, certainly got soil under his fingernails. And we've got him on the line. Hopefully he's going to give us some uh, really good advice, some five of his top tips for vegetable gardening. Hi, Simon. Hello, Nancy. Nice to have you with us and Happy New Year. Thank you for receiving me and Happy New Year to you. Good, good. So, I mean, I think you've been in gardening for a long time, particularly in terms of vegetable gardening. You know, we talk about vegetable gardening a lot. It's such a sensible thing to do. But, you know, there are there are sort of easy ways with it. And sometimes it's not quite as easy as you think. In your view, what are the, the five most important things or however many important things are there when it comes to vegetable gardening successfully? Okay. The most, the most important things that I would, okay, the most important things that I would say are very much important is, is, uh, is to have enthusiasm first for, for, for the garden, and then one of the most important things is to is to is to make time, and um, and then also is to is to is to enjoy what you are doing because when you when you are involved with the garden you, you get to to meet a lot of people. And then in that way, you get to, to learn at the same time because you're not only coming with information, but also you're receiving information from different people from different places. So I would kind of say, like, it's one of those things that gets to, to be enjoyable when you work in the garden. Yeah. Hmm. I certainly wasn't expecting that as a top tip, I have to say, but you're quite right because if you're enthusiastic and it's something you really want to do, you're going to make the time. And if you feel you've just got to get out there, whether you like it or not, and and you're a bit sort of bored and tired with it, it, you know, things are not going to grow nicely. So given that you're enthusiastic and given that you can make the time, what next? What else is important? Sorry, can I hear properly? What, What else is important to ensure that your vegetables are going to grow healthily? One of the most important things to make sure that your vegetables, vegetables grow healthy is, is, is you always put research because you can never say that you have you have you have you have you have you, have, um, you, are, you, you, you are more knowledgeable than other people. But you always research and you always receive information from other people because you will find that 
the knowledge that you have can always be improved. So in those kinds of things, it's very much important that you, you learn as, as, as you work in the garden because the garden also teaches you as a person because that's where you get to, 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 to understand nature, that nature evolves and nature mm-hmm. is there to teach you as a person a few things and, and, and also you get to, to bond with nature because, because one of those things you, you get to, 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 to relate with nature when you, when, when, when you respect nature, then nature will, will give you more information on what to do because nature speaks with us, but we just tend to not be vigilant. We just tend to, to neglect. But if you, if you are attentive and you are vigilant, you open your eyes, you begin to see that nature is giving you back information if, for instance, something that nature does not like. Nature will respond in a certain way. And if something that nature likes, you will see, for instance, from your, from your garden, from your crops or, or, or from your plants, that you will see them that they tend to, to, to show in a certain way that now the plants are responding well, very well, or sometimes they may respond negatively. And we also have to remember that what is good for nature is good for our bodies, and what is bad for nature is bad for us as well, because we are part of nature. Nature and us are one thing. Wow. If I didn't know differently, I would say that perhaps you're a Buddhist, or maybe you are, <laughs> a, very, <laughs> a very sort of wise philosophical approach to gardening. But I just have to ask you one thing, and it's all in the title of your program, Soil for Life. Okay. It, it's often said that it's all in the soil. How do you make sure that your soil is really good and healthy? Okay, that's a very good question. Yeah, because in South Africa, you will find that there are places where soil is not pretty well, especially, for instance, in the Western Cape, in Cape Town. Yeah, you'll find that the soil is very much a sandy soil. It's a sandy soil. So what do we do in Soil for Life? We build the soil. How do we build the soil? We, we are an NGO that, is, that, is, that believes in organic metals. And, 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 and we want to, to, to build the soil in a healthy way not by using fertilizers and, and, and chemicals. So what we do, we use, the, for instance, the, 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 the veggies, the, the old stuff that rots, not the old stuff that does not rot, but the things that rot. And we, we, we normal, what we normally do, we, 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 we dug that stuff underneath the ground so that it can become part of the, of the so that it can break down underneath the, underneath the ground and build the soil so that the soil can have all that it lacked before, so that when you plant on top of your on top of your on top of your on top of your your trench bed, your trench bed can be able to produce food that is nutritious on a soil that has been built properly using organ using um, using vegetables that will break down and build that soil. Yeah. I absolutely love the way you think. Simon, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm going to give out the website if anybody would like to know a little bit more about Soil for Life and your philosophy. It's soilforlife.co.za. And your, your five tips are enthusiasm, make time, enjoy what you're doing, research and listen to others, respect and listen to nature, and build your soil naturally. What wonderful gardening tips. Simon Kashani, thank you so much. Take thank care. Thank you very much. Thanks Nancy. a lot. It's a pleasure. Well, how lovely is that? I hope Stephen Kirker was listening carefully to all of that. Yes, I was. How's your pumpkin coming on? Uh, um, Oh, you see, you also (laughs) forgot. (laughs) 
funny you should ask. I need to learn to respect it more. <laughs> I was fascinated by that. I just had to plant out some bulbs before Christmas, and uh, I'm not much of a gardener. We should be much more garden-wise, keeping an eye on them. Uh, but I always say we shouldn't be uh, using um, the domestic water supply to feed our plants. That's just not sustainable, is it? More great environmental tips next week, Thursday, between 9 p.m. and 10 p.m.